Genesis chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, we would encourage you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find this morning's text on page 13. It's always a good thing to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you as we examine and study it together. And maybe uniquely so today because in our ongoing study of Genesis, we're going to look at the entirety of Genesis chapter 19, which if you know the chapter is a storm, we might even say a hurricane of God's wrath and judgment that is unrivaled in the entirety of the Bible. And of course, it's not a storm that we can go over, we can go under, go around, but you have to drive straight into it and see the truth for what God must have us see this morning. So we are going to look through the entirety of all 38 verses. But what I want to do to help us kind of get in the sense of the text and also kind of recognize its tension and tone is just read verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. And then I'll pray for our time and we will begin. So let us hear now as once again our God of perfect righteousness speaks to us. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord, He has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. At Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? It's withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you now and praise you because you are a God of perfect righteousness, eternal justice, that you work such righteousness and justice for the glory of your name. Lord, we come to texts like this and we know that we are supposed to fear you, to tremble before you, and we pray that you would pour out the Spirit upon us this morning that we might do just that that we would have a righteous fear of your justice that the Spirit uses to cause us to flee to Christ, who is our only hope from the punishment our sins deserve. So help us maybe with unique expectation to hear the truth of your word this morning. Help me to preach as you say I must, with courage and with clarity, that Christ might be exalted Father, we even stand before you now and bow before you now as people who are dying, 
standing on the edge of the precipice of eternity. And so help us here as such. Help me to preach as such. We pray that you might be glorified. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two of the most loved and influential preachers in 19th century Scotland were close friends. Their names were Andrew Bonar and Robert Murray McShane. They ministered in different parishes in the Church of Scotland, but made it part of their regular practice to get together with some regularity to encourage each other in the gospel ministry, to hear updates about what they had been doing, texts they had been preaching on. And on one of these occasions, they were walking together along the way, and McShane turned to Bonar and said, What text did you preach on last Sunday? And Bonar said, Psalm 9, verse 17, The wicked shall be turned to hell. And McShane, it seems like, just stopped in that moment as he was often wont to do and looked his friend directly in the eyes and asked the question, were you able to preach it with tears? Because McShane knew that preachers can take such passages of God's judgment and wield it with the wisdom and skill of a three-year-old who holds a razor-sharp dagger in his hands. Danger. Watch out. The preacher is on about God's justice. And McShane even did that in his own ministry. There was a sermon later on in his life that he preached from Malachi. And he took as his theme, the many virtues that accompany a man to hell. And he said at the outset of announcing that main point, he said, I desire to speak with all reverence, with all tenderness upon Such a dreadful subject. No man should speak about hell without tears in his eyes. We, of course, need to hear those encouraging words and even exhortation words to us this morning because what we see is perhaps unlike any other picture in Scripture, a portrait of hell poured out on sinners. As we see Sodom, this city synonymous with sin, consumed as God rains hell down from heaven. And the reason we, of course, must approach it with tenderness and tears, even if they are in the heart, is because some of you in here today, if Christ was to return in the next few minutes, you would know this hellfire and brimstone. And if you don't reckon with that reality today, you'll see actually we'll be much worse off for you by the end of our study. So the simple theme that we just want to see from this well-known passage, which is not just well-known in Genesis, it's well-known in all of Scripture. It's even culturally well-known still in our somewhat civic Christian moment in America. Is the simple title, the simple idea, if you will, of flee God's judgment on sin. Didn't we just see it in many ways, even articulated in verse 17, escape for your life. That's the announcement of Genesis 17. It's an announcement, of course, that goes immediately to Lot and his family. But through the word and spirit, it goes out to each one of you this morning. Flee God's judgment on sin. Escape for your life. And to help you kind of know, even in certain ways, the kind of chronology of what happens here in chapter 19, I just want to walk through our our full chapter, our long chapter, with four four headings. First, we're going to see a nighttime warning about judgment. 
then an early morning escape from judgment, then a daytime display of judgment, and a hillside scheme after judgment. That's where we were wanting to go today. So if you weren't with us last week, we left off at the end of chapter 18 with Abraham interceding. He's praying. He's even bargaining with God about God's plan to destroy Sodom. He's let, God has let Abraham into his divine counsel. He's going to be a blessing to all the nations. We know he must instruct his children in the ways of righteousness and holiness. He must be able to know just the terror that falls upon sinners who do not come to God in faith. And so God brings Abraham into his counsel. And Abraham, of course, knows he has family in Sodom. A man named Lot who was his nephew. And God plans to destroy it. And so Abraham begins to argue, even in prayer, with God in certain ways, humbly and reverently, saying, will you really wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous? Verse 25, if you look back to chapter 18, he asks a simple question that is the heart of his prayer. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you really wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous? So we saw last week that Abraham whittled down the number of required righteous people in Sodom to ten. God says, if I find ten righteous people in Sodom, I'm not going to destroy the city. And he sends down his two angels to investigate the scene below to see if there are, in fact, ten righteous people in Sodom. And it's those two angels that come to our attention. Notice in verse 1 as we begin to see this nighttime warning about judgment. We're told the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And you can even stop right there, kids, because it's in the darkness, isn't it, that sin rises spiritually, darkness rises literally. I've heard stories of the great football coach Nick Saban warning his incoming players every single year at the beginning of the football season, nothing good happens after midnight. And I'm sure some of you parents have probably said something similar to your children. Nothing good happens late. And what you need to see is the darkness is beginning to rise on Sodom. Not just literally, but spiritually as we're soon going to see. And look at what the angels find at the ongoing part of verse 1. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now normally in the ancient Near Eastern context, if you were sitting as Lot was in the gate, at the gate of the city, you were likened to be a judge of that people. Because the gate was the center point of the city. It was the downtown area. It was the marketplace. It was the main thoroughfare. It was the place of the town council. It was the place of the town courtroom. And those men, those elders in the city that sat at the gate, they were the ones that were in charge of meeting out punishment, deciding cases of arbitration, and other matters of justice. And Lot thus seems to have some degree of standing within the community of Sodom and he seems to very clearly recognize that these two men are in danger because he knows the character of Sodom. Look what he says in verse 2. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. You got to see urgency in Lot's action. He's like, yep, get to my house. Night is coming. I'll feed you, you can sleep, and then we'll get you up early in the morning before anyone else gets up, and then you can get out of the city. And you need to see urgency in Lot's action, even in what he feeds 
these two men after he prevails upon them to come home. Look at the end of verse 3. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So, children, do you know of another time, not long after this, at least in our pages of Scripture, that someone else is making unleavened bread? It's on the night of Passover, wasn't it? A night of great urgency, as the angel of judgment is going through the areas of Egypt. It's on this night that unleavened bread is made and given to angels of judgment. Signaling for us, this is something of a liberating event of judgment that's getting ready to come. Just as it was in the future for the nation of Israel, Abraham's family. Salvation came through judgment. Now for Abraham's family, this man named Lot, salvation is going to come through judgment. And so they get inside the house. They're beginning to eat. And soon enough, they're surely getting tired. But notice what we're told in verse 4 and 5. Before they lay down, that being the two men, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Like fire ants descending upon a piece of dropped candy. So does every Man and boy in Sodom surround Lot's house and say, bring them out that we may know them. Now, students, I'd have you pay particular attention at this point on these verses. Because there is truth in that the history of Christianity, this scene, unlike any other in Scripture, has been used to teach the sin of of homosexuality. You you might know that the verb know here is typically used in the Old Testament to speak of sexual union and intimacy. We saw it even previously, didn't we, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam, what? Knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son named Cain. But in our modern culture that wants to overthrow Biblical sexual ethics has now said the sin of Sodom in this moment isn't homosexuality, but the sin of Sodom in this moment is a lack of hospitality. They just want to know these two men. Don't let Lot get all the blessings of hospitality. Come on, Lot, share the knowledge of these two men with us. Going so far to say, of course, that this doesn't prove anything about the nature of biblical sexuality. Prove the nature of homosexuality as its sin. In fact, actually, doesn't the Bible tell us that homosexuality is both normal and beneficial? And parents, if you are not recognizing that your children, that your students will be taught that cultural doctrine, you must recognize they will be taught that cultural doctrine. And and we turn to Genesis 19 to speak about the reality of sin. Because, of course, it's quite clear, isn't it, in the rest of Scripture, as it comments on Sodom's sin. It does so with astonishing clarity. Let me just give you one particular text. Jude verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. 
For Jude, inspired by the Spirit, he looks back on Genesis 17 and says, no, the reality here is that homosexuality is not normal and beneficial. It's unnatural and unbiblical. We must teach this truth to our children because someone's going to teach them opposite if we keep our mouths shut. But really, the point here is not the sin. It's the judgment that falls on sin, which leads us now to what just strikes everyone as completely out of place. Look at what Lot decides to do after he shuts the door behind him. Verse 8, he suggests a substitute. Behold, I have two daughters who have known not any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And it's likely that many of you have read Genesis 19 before and almost had this kind of knee-jerk reaction of verse 8. What is Lot doing? Sacrificing his two virgin daughters to the mob. How could he ever do such a thing? I've wondered that for a long time. So I began to ask it in earnest this week. Because I know every time that Lot is mentioned in the Bible... It's actually never with bad commentary. He, in fact, is positively viewed in the New Testament. Do you know this? Second Peter chapter 2 tells us this with clarity as well. Verse 7 and 8, If God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times in two verses, Peter says, he is righteous. And you go back to Genesis 19, you say, how is he righteous? Don't you see what he did? Or maybe we haven't rightly seen what he did. Because if you skip down to verse 14, something interesting is happening in the Hebrew that you're not going to see unless you have a King James Version Bible in front of you. If you have that old authorized text, you'll notice in verse 14 it tells us that Lot goes out to his sons-in-law who were married to his daughters. And that's exactly what the Hebrew says. My ESV translated for some unknown reason as who were to marry his daughters, but the text actually says in Hebrew that they already were married. The Greek translation of the Hebrew text, which is called the Septuagint, this uh, translation that the apostles had mastered, it too says they were already married. And it kind of makes sense in certain ways that uh, earlier on in the passage, there in verse 14, it says Lot has to leave his house to go out to his sons-in-law's house where they were already married to his daughters. So here's what I actually think is happening. And whether or not you agree with me is somewhat beside the point in terms of the main point of this passage. But I think what he's doing in verse 7 is just lying through his teeth. Deceptively trying to buy time to figure out what to do. And if you don't understand, deception is this interesting sub-theme in Genesis. You're going to find out soon enough when we get to the life of Jacob and even Abraham's further descendants. Deception happens a lot in Genesis. And I think it happens here with Lot. He's trying to buy time. And whether or not that's true, what is undeniably true is what happens as a result. You'll see in the next few verses, they basically say, Who are you, Lot, to talk to us? You're just an outsider. You don't belong here. Get out of the way and give us what we want. 
Well, then it's quite amazing, isn't it? The angels reach out. Picture the scene. Reach out from behind the door and yank him by the scruff of his neck. Close the door and look at verse 11. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out groping for the door. You know, just as God came down to Babel to confuse their language. So does God come down with these angels of judgment to confound the eyesight of the Sodomites? And it's a stunning picture, isn't it, to the reality of sin? Because the Bible tells us that we're born dead in sin. We are spiritually blind to the truth that Jesus is the only door to salvation. And all human effort, human schemes to reach salvation are just what we see these men doing. Groping blind after a door that they cannot find. So you'll notice, as we read earlier, the angels go to Lot and say, do you have anyone else in the city? Family, you need to go warn them because we are coming to destroy this city. Go preach the good news as salvation can be found because the time of refuge and redemption is at hand. And look what happens in verse 14. So he goes out to his sons-in-law who were married to his daughters. Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, joking, having fun. It reminds me of the story of the Danish philosopher, theologian, all-around smart guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He was once asked, what happens to those who warn in this present age. And, and the context of the question was, what, what do you think about preachers, teachers of the gospel who warn people about God's judgment on sin? And he began to tell a parable. He said, it's, it's much like the opening of a new theater house to this brand new play that's captivated the culture. So the audience comes in to the theater house and somewhere along the play during an intermission, a clown bursts on stage and he starts to yell, fire, fire. I think it's part of the performance. So they begin to smile and clap and egg him on. Keep going, fiery clown. And he keeps going more flamboyantly than ever. Fire! Fire! To the point they give him a standing ovation for his urgency. Because they thought it was all just a joke. It's exactly what's happening here, isn't it, with Lot's sons-in-law? He seemed to be jesting. It's impossible. I mean, it's possible, isn't it? Some of you might be in here today and think what we see in this text is all a joke. That we're just jesting when we talk about God's consuming sinners with hell out of heaven. We don't joke, do we? But we tell the truth with urgency like the angels because we know there's a way of escape. That there is a way to flee God's judgment on sin. For look at what the angels go on to do. Right, he says in verse 15, once again, up, take your family with you, lest you be swept away in the punishment. But what does Lot do? I think this is his real failing in the text. He lingers. And I always wanted to know, why? You know, I just love that question. <laughs> why does Lot linger? And you can think about it poorly or think about it like in terms of understanding how this often goes in the human experience. He looks on all of his possessions. We know he was a wealthy man. 
very wealthy, so much so that he and Abraham had to separate. And he knows they're all about ready to be consumed. Wouldn't some of you look back on those possessions and stop for a second? Or perhaps it's almost as though in his spirit he's saying, let me try one more time to tell the kids that judgment is coming. Let me try one more time to tell my friends and neighbors that they're about to be destroyed. Whatever it was, he lingered. So, notice as verse 16 continues, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Underscore this phrase, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. It's a stunning declaration. What a picture of God's sovereign grace, isn't it? That his desire to save Lot was greater than Lot's desire to save himself. Don't you know that God wants you more than you want him? That God is willing to grab you when you don't want to hold on. Seize you in mercy so you might be saved. And he does that, doesn't he? Strikingly enough, you got four hands of the angels. Four people they grab, but they warn along the way, don't they? Verse 17, once again, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere along the way in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Kids, if you look down at verse 17 through 22... You notice five times in four verses, they use the language of escape. That is what the text is telling us. Flee God's judgment on sin. Escape for your life. I wonder if you desire to escape sin. Escape God's judgment. Lot, strikingly enough, if you just glance your way through the next few verses, he begins to negotiate with the angels about where he's going to go and find refuge. I presume because of the way the language goes, it's because he thinks he's too old to make it all the way up the mountain. So he says, well, let me get to the city of Zoar. It's closer, it's easier to get into, it's more accessible. And so the angels come down and do him a favor. You'll notice verse 21, behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. So that's the nighttime warning about judgment. And now you see in the next few verses, I'm sorry, that was the actually early morning escape from judgment. Here is the daytime display of judgment. You see in verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth over the city of Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. Other translations will say hellfire and brimstone from out of heaven. I have this book at home that's titled Fordlandia. It's this odd story about Henry Ford, who was head of the Ford Motor Company. And in 1927, he decided to essentially buy up part of the Brazilian jungle because he was going to make this rubber plantation factory there. But part of his scheme was he was going to turn in this Amazonian jungle the area into something like an American oasis there in the rainforest. And it failed spectacularly. You could even go visit it today, and it's nothing more than a total ghost town. 
And you might remember from Genesis 14 that Sodom is called a garden paradise like the Garden of Eden. And here God doesn't just lay waste to it so it's a ghost town. You see, he lays waste to it that nothing is left. Every worm dies. Every ant destroyed. Every cow, every donkey, every house, every street, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, everything gone because of God's judgment on sin. Look at verse 25 and 26. He overthrew those cities and all of them in the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind Lot looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I think I grew up with a picture of Genesis 19 in my mind, maybe from Sunday school, rightly or wrongly, as though Lot and his wife and his family are just outside of the city of Sodom when his wife turns back and she's ground down to a pillar of salt. But the text tells us they actually make it all the way to Zoar, which means out of Sodom and Gomorrah, out of all the cities and the valleys, all the way to Zoar, and then and only then, what does she do? Look back and immediately suffers God's judgment. You need to see, children, that obedience is all the way through. You can start well, but not finish well. You might start with good intentions, but not see through to the end. You might come to Christ in faith, but not keep faith in Jesus Christ. It even seems to be in the back of Jesus' mind in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, when he says, No one can be a disciple in my kingdom and put his hand to the plow and turn back and follow me. But there is this continual forward motion of glancing towards the Lord Jesus Christ to the place of refuge if we're ever to escape his judgment. And interestingly enough, this whole scene has an audience. Do you see it in verse 27 and 28? Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That's what we saw last week at the end of chapter 18. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That is the picture of God's judgment on sin, the sight and smell of a furnace. Such is the daytime display of judgment leading to this final scene which I'm calling a hillside scheme after judgment, which seems altogether wild, doesn't it, if you know what's happening here? Because there's this great irony that Lot, he didn't want to go to the mountains because he was too scared he wasn't going to make it up there, so he asked for permission to go to the city of Zoar, and then if you notice, verse 30, he gets into Zoar, and he's too scared to stay there, so he actually goes up into the hills and lives in a cave with his two daughters. If you've ever seen any sort of apocalypse-like movie, that's the scene that we're meant to feel here in Lot's family. You have these two daughters that look around and say, there's no one to give us a child. There's no man left on the earth except him. And so what does the older sister do? Verse 31 and 32 our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. 
that we may preserve offspring from our Father. I don't know if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses. That's exactly what happens on two successive occasions. The text makes it seem on two successive evenings. They get their father drunk. The older sleeps with him and she conceives and has a child. The text goes on to tell us became the father of the Moabites. The younger slept with her father. She conceived and bore a child who becomes the father of the Ammonites. And really it's just a passage that's meant to tell us where the Moabites and Ammonites came from in the nation of Israel's history. These two peoples, Moab and Ammon, that were long-tenured enemies of God's people. It ought not to surprise us that they came against God's people having been conceived in such a circumstance. But in ways you might not have seen before, do you see how this has a stunning echo of something we saw earlier in Genesis with another catastrophic flood of judgment? You have Noah and Lot, both called righteous. You have Noah and Lot, both shut in a structure by the Lord. Noah and Lot, delivered from the overwhelming flood of judgment that consumed every living thing on the earth with their family. Noah and Lot, getting drunk after the deliverance. Noah and Lot, sinned against by their children. I guess in many ways it's telling us if we really ever wondered that just like Noah, Lot is not the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. He is in the family of Abraham, his nephew. But this is not the serpent crusher that we're looking for. This is a failed man who did trust in God, but did so with great difficulty. You know, we read this book at home. What's it called with the kids? Um, we're going on a bear hunt. If you've ever read this book, it's got this common refrain on every single page. It's why it's easy to memorize. You know, Going on a bear hunt. Gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Right? And as the narrative goes on, it comes on these obstacles along the way. We can't go under it. We can't go over it. Oh, no. We've got to go through it. You can't go under, over, around Genesis 19. You must go through it if you're to know the truth of who God is and what His character means for us who are sinners. Flee God's judgment on sin. And to help you do that, what I want to do as we begin to close is bring out just a few more things from the passage that you need to know related to judgment. What God tells us, particularly Jesus tells us as he comments back on this chapter, what he tells us about judgment. For the call to us this morning from God's judgment on Sodom is to heed and to read and to recognize, number one, the promise of unexpected judgment. Because Jesus later on, you can mark this down in Luke chapter 17, begins to talk about his return. And he says it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah and just like it was in the days of Lot. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be startling. It's going to be surprising. So the main point of Jesus' sermon right there is three words. Remember Lot's wife. Follow through with Christ until the very end in your trust in him. 
The judgment will come at a time when you don't expect. The judgment will come at a time when you don't think it's coming. The judgment will come at a time when you might think it might be just more than a joke or little more than a joke. But the judgment is on the way. Number two, you you need to see the principle of increased judgment. Not just the promise of unexpected judgment, the principle of increased judgment. You can mark this down as well. Matthew chapter 11. It's altogether a stunning scene when you know what Jesus is saying. He pronounces woes upon a series of cities. Chorazin. Bethsaida. And he says, you've heard my preaching. You've seen my miracles. And if Sodom heard it and saw it, they would have repented and remained until this day. But you didn't. And so at the day of judgment, it will be worse off for you than it was for Sodom. Many of you for decades, access to God's means of grace, preaching of the gospel, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the prayers of his people, increased access to Jesus Christ. To shun him is to shun him unto increased judgment. And kids and students, let me speak directly to you even now. Many of you, of course, have been in this church for some time. Many of you are coming into this church. We hope you will stay with us for some time. You will hear Christ, meet Christ in the sermon. You will hear Christ and meet Christ in our fellowship. You've been baptized. You will hear Christ and meet Christ by faith in the Lord's Supper. Be recipients of the prayers of God's people. But if you don't turn, it will be worse off for you than what we just saw in Genesis 19. But we don't stop there. See, finally, the provision of satisfied judgment. Let's look back at verse 29. The audience of Abraham is on the mountain. So it was, verse 29 says, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot was saved because of his relationship with Abraham. Lot was saved because of Abraham's intercession that we saw last week. Do you know that you can be saved because of your relationship with Abraham's seed? Jesus Christ. You can be saved because of your relationship with Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, who intercedes always for his people. And how can he do that? Wasn't it true that you run to another mountain? You run to another place of refuge that we call Mount Calvary because it was there on the cross of Jesus Christ. He hung. And what did he receive? But hellfire poured forth from heaven into his very heart, taking it from people like you and me. Willingly, lovingly, perfectly, so that you might be saved from the judgment your sin deserves. Flee God's judgment. Flee it as you flee to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our spiritual legs by the Spirit to run, to swiftly escape the punishment that our sin deserves. 
to run the race that is set before us with endurance, not looking back, always looking to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let us stand together as we want to respond to God's word by singing of the glory of Jesus Christ in hymn number 246, Man of Sorrows, what a name.